Well, good morning. Uh, it is a pleasure to be here this morning. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be able to speak from God's Word this morning and, and thankful for your willingness to come and join me on the journey as we, as we enter the Scripture this morning. Um, as I start, I want to ask a quick question. Have you ever said to someone else, hey, you owe me? You owe me one. Or had someone say that to you? I think we can all identify with that in some way or another. It's the idea that there is some recognition or of a good deed that you did or some, some kind of hope for maybe even a kickback later on down the road from that person. They say, you owe me one. Instantly, as soon as that statement is made, there's a debtor relationship, right? There's an imbalance. We're not quite on equal terms anymore. Okay, and that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. An example of that uh, kind of happened this, this last weekend. As we were biking down to Orlando, Florida, one of the groups found a cell phone on the road, and we talked about this a little bit in Sunday school. So some of you know where I'm going with this. Well, they picked it up with good intention, threw it in the van. We got to the hotel in the chaos of checking in and being welcomed by everybody at the AHA process. It kind of just went out of everybody's mind, and the phone sat in the van. It wasn't until about 1.30 a.m. that it was brought to everybody's attention again. As phones started ringing in rooms and doors were knocked on, and uh, people started getting called out of their room by police officers. Because apparently that's, that phone had been stolen earlier th at that day and just chucked on the road. And the cops wanted to find out who was the, th the thief behind it all. So they tra traced the phone to one of our vans and then systematically started waking up everybody to interrogate them. Now here's the thing. They called our room, but I just barely woke up, thought it was the alarm malfunctioning. Catherine didn't budge. I assumed she just turned off the alarm. And then come to find the next morning, as we're talking to everybody, that not everybody had as great of a sleep as, as we did. In fact, the interrogation went on for quite a long time, and one of the members turned to me in the midst of telling the story and said, hey, the officer that was uh, grilling me, they wanted to wake you and Catherine up, but I convinced them not to. You owe me one. <laughs> okay, so there's that phrase, you owe me one. So now I'm scrambling. I'm like, okay, uh, debtor relationship, there's an imbalance, what do I do? Later on in the conference, that same person said, hey, man, I am thirsty. I could really use a Diet Coke. There it was. <laughs> That's how I could do it. I ran, to the, I ran downstairs to the hotel lobby, bought a, a Diet uh, Coke, ran it back up and said, good. Debt canceled, loop closed, balance of relationship, sweet. Okay? Now, that's a silly example. And that was one that I could, I could pay. I could pay that debt with a Diet Coke. But what about when the debt is way more serious? What about in life when it's a debt that we really can't pay back? That there's no possible way to settle the score? I'm talking about a father who has abandoned his kids and taken from them the relationship that they deserved. 
I'm talking about the employee who's just been fired by an employer who's been giving them every signal that they were the next in line for the big promotion. I'm talking about an adult woman who way back in her childhood was abused by a family member who should have been a friend but ended up being a monster. What if the debt's like that? How in the world could you ever pay back that debt? How could that relationship ever be restored? How could balance ever be brought back there? See, we need a solution to the dilemma that we're in. We need a solution for what happens when those debts are just so enormous that we could never pay back. What do we do? How do we move on from that? We need a solution other than, well, just have them pay back the debt. Well, just run and get a Diet Coke. It's not that simple. Our text this morning from Matthew 18 speaks to that dilemma that we find ourselves in, where a debt is owed and a debtor relationship's been established. The title for our sermon this morning is Breaking Free from You Owe Me, because that's what everything centers around. A demand that a debt be paid back and the statement, You Owe Me. And Jesus isn't silent on this matter. He has something to say to us when we set up this kind of uh, situation in our mind and when we let this phrase dominate our lives. You owe me. The parable of Jesus is a fantastic example of forgiveness in the lives of those professing to follow Jesus. This is an image for Christians. This parable is told to Christians who are living in community where hurts have been done and debts are owed. This is for all of us. None of us, none of us does this not apply to in some way. It's an essential aspect of the Christian life that we're talking about this morning. And we'll see that until we accept forgiveness, we can't extend forgiveness. Until we accept forgiveness, we can't extend forgiveness. See, what I want for you, for you this morning, what I, what I desperately want for all of us, is that we could break free from the corrosive and festering nature of bitterness and anger and holding grudges and holding people to those debts that they owe us. I want the relationships that you have now to not be affected by things that happen many, many years ago by people that may or may not even be in your life anymore. You see, if you have this I owe, you owe me mentality in your mind, that's affecting and coloring all of your relationships right now. So as you're turning to Matthew 18, 21 to 35, let's get oriented. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take the one in the pew with you today. That's our gift to you. Our context here in Matthew is that we're in a stage of crescendo. It's building towards the climactic 
conclusion of Jesus' ministry. We're moving from Jesus' hometown in the north and traveling south to Judea, Jerusalem, the center, the Mecca of Jewish religion at the time. This is where the temple was. This is where all the Jewish leaders, anybody that was anybody in terms of religion was here. But this would also be the the point of the biggest conflict, the most conflict, the most pushback that Jesus would feel in his ministry would happen here in Jerusalem. And Jesus is trying to teach his disciples as as he gets closer and closer to the end, he's trying to teach his disciples by example and by his words and by his parables everything that he possibly can. The most essential, the most important truths that he can give to his disciples as the end looms. And it's really an interesting dynamic that we have here. It's a very eerie foreshadowing. A parable about forgiveness leading us up to the cross of, of Calvary leading us up to that point where Jesus would demonstrate the ultimate forgiveness, where both mercy and justice would collide perfectly. So let's look at um, Matthew 18, 23 to 35. And we're just going to start with uh, uh, the first couple of verses but as we go through the text this morning, we're going to look at three, um, three misunderstandings of forgiving, forgiveness. And we're going to see how this text kind of answers and combats those, those misunderstandings. One, forgiveness is limited. Okay, that's, that's the first misunderstanding. Second, forgiveness is dependent on feelings. Second misunderstanding. Third, forgiveness only benefits the forgiven. Okay, so we'll take those... We'll take those three points, and as we start with verse 21 to 22, we'll see Jesus dealing with the first one right away. Let's read. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Peter asked, how many times should I forgive? It's a telling question. Peter thinks he's being very generous. He thinks he's being a nice guy by saying, hey, let's let's go seven times. Because the thinking of the day, the thinking that would have been coming out of Jerusalem, the thinking that would have been coming from religious leaders at that time would have been, hey, three is a lot, four is your max. That's how many times you forgive. Beyond that, you do whatever you want. Throw the person in prison, um, have them tortured, whatever you want to do. After four times, that's on them. So Peter's like, okay, I get, I get the idea. I, I've been walking with Jesus long enough to know that he likes to push the envelope on things. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest seven. And he's going to be blown away. I'm pretty sure Jesus is going to be impressed by that. But no, Jesus is not impressed by that. He says 77. Some translations say seven times 77. The point is not a number. The point is not, okay, At 77 now, that's when we stop. The point is, Jesus is saying that our forgiveness needs to be, should be, unlimited. Okay, so um, there is no stopping point. 
There's no ceiling to the number of times that we forgive. And uh, I like the way C.S. Lewis puts it. This is hard. It is perhaps not so hard to forgive a single great injury, but to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life. To keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son. How can we do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand. By meaning our words when we say in our prayers each night, forgive our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. We are offered forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse it is to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. There is no hint of exceptions. And God means what he says. There, There should be no limit to our forgiveness because our forgiveness from the Father is unlimited. I imagine at this point in the parable, uh, at this point in our text, the parable is kind of prompted by Peter's maybe kind of questioning look, like, what? What are you talking about? 77, 490? What what are you talking about, Jesus? And then we get into and we get into this parable, and Jesus explains with this illustration. And we're going to see that misunderstanding number two and three are going to be confronted. So let's, let's read, starting with verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Let's look at this. For the debt is unpayable. That's clear right from the beginning. 10,000 bags of gold or 10,000 talents was more than a lifetime's wages. We're talking about a king's ransom here. We're talking about, think all of the resources and money that would have come in to a kingdom in one year. And that's the amount we're talking about. This is a huge loss for the king to cancel this debt. Shockingly, after a little groveling session by our first servant, servant number one, we'll call him, the king decides to forgive. Instead of insisting on on being paid, he cancels the debt. The king has every right to be paid back. We cannot miss that. He has every right to pay to being paid back, but he makes a choice to forgive. He makes a choice to forgo his rights in order to do what's right. Did you catch that? He makes a choice. He doesn't go back on his feelings. He doesn't go back back to what he's entitled or what is owed him, what is, is his right as the king. He decides and makes a choice to forgive. How many of you have ever felt powerless to forgive? Something's been done to you, some hurt, so tremendous, you can't even possibly imagine forgiving the person that's done it to you. That thought never even enters your mind. You feel like you are trapped, you're stuck in a you-owe-me type of relationship, and you can't get out. 
because the debt could never possibly be paid. But the wise king understands that he's not powerless. He understands that he has a choice. Even with this massive debt, he chooses to forgive and cancel the debt. Not dependent on feelings. Not dependent on the size of the debt. But he chooses to cancel the debt. And then at the unbelievable mercy of the king, the first servant should by all accounts recognize the debt that's been paid and forgive. He should live out that forgiveness as he's been shown. But let's, let's read what he does. Verse 28. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. The demand is made. There it is. You owe me. The first servant buys into the misunderstanding that that, um, forgiveness is dependent on feelings. And quite frankly, he doesn't feel like forgiving. He feels like getting what he's owed. That's our natural response too. To get what's owed, to settle the score, to even the unbalance. Look at verse 26. He says, um, I will pay back everything. He does not even realize the depth of what has been canceled for him. The depth of that debt that's been canceled for him because he thinks by saying, I'll pay back everything, just give me enough time. He thinks that he somehow in his power can pay back that debt. And then we get to verse 31. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. At this point, we need to be, the author is trying to draw us into this, into this parable. He's saying, look, you guys should be shaking your heads in disgust at this point, right along with those other servants that are witnessing this. This complete lack of forgiveness on the part of someone that's been completely and totally and utterly forgiven of a massive debt. But as we continue, we're going to see not only that forgiveness is a choice, but that forgiveness doesn't only benefit the forgiven. It benefits the ones forgiving as well. The truth is forgiveness frees us from a prison of bitterness and anger. When the first servant refuses to cancel the debt, when he refuses to show mercy, he essentially says, I will never forgive them for what they've done to me. Can any of you relate to this statement? Have you heard someone say that? Plenty of times I've heard someone say, after they tell me their story of woe, their story of, wow, someone did this to me or someone did that to me, the phrase is uttered to kind of, as almost like a period to the story, I will never 
forgive that person for what they've done. And that's the nail on the coffin. That's the guarantee that that person is going to be stuck in that cycle of bitterness and anger. And it's not just going to affect their relationship with the person that hurt them. It's going to affect their relationship with every single person that they come in contact with. Anytime there's a reminder of that hurt, that anger is going to be kicked up. That bitterness is going to be stirred. I love this quote from John Piper. What destroys us is the settled position that we are not going to forgive and we have no intention to forgive. And we intend to cherish the grudge and fondle the wrong that someone did to me and feel the bitterness. There's something about us that wants that. There's something about us that that feeling of bitterness and anger gives us control. Maybe, Maybe it's comforting to us. It feels like in a powerless situation, we somehow have power by holding on to that bitterness and anger. But unknowingly, the first servant has chosen the fate of torment for his soul. By holding on to that statement, you owe me. problem is, in most cases, in most cases in our lives, the debt can't be paid. How does an absent father pay back his children for all those years he's missed? How does an employer return the reputation and offset the pain of laying off an employee that was by all indications bound for a massive promotion? How does a perverted monster give back the innocence of a young girl that was stolen years ago? At this point, we may be saying, wait, 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 wait. Talking all, all this forgiveness talk, wh- where's the justice? Where's the justice in this? That person deserves what they get. That person deserves to pay. But our only hope of breaking free from bitterness and anger that's killing us is forgiveness. See, forgiveness actually benefits the one who's forgiving. Here's another statement that I think sums this up. But the result of forgiveness is freedom from that reality and the chance to have a future unfettered by resentment and grudges from the past. It takes the power away from others and we get our lives back. It's an arrangement that cannot be matched. The truth is, forgiveness sets us free to stand on the ground of mercy instead of justice. If we demand to be paid, if we demand justice, and that's the road that we want to travel down, God says, okay. If you want to stand on the ground of justice, that's where I'll stand too. This concluding statement by Jesus in verse 35, it's kind of crazy. But let's start, um, let's go at 32. 
We'll start at 32. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant. He said, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. He's saying if you choose to stand on the side of justice, that's the side that God's going to stand on for you. Once justice is the ground we stand on, we've ruled out the chance for mercy. We've opted to choose the side of justice rather than mercy. But this can be a little bit confusing, kind of like Matthew 16. Uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 6, verse 15. It says, but if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This isn't a you do something for me, I'll do something for you situation. We've got to get that out of our minds. This isn't, this isn't conditional. This isn't a conditional statement in that regard. What we have to understand is that we have already been forgiven. That forgiven has already been extended. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that we could be forgiven. His blood paid our debt. That's been canceled. The conditional aspect rests in our hands. The ball is in our court. As those who are guilty of an offense but have been freed from the debt, that's you and me, We have the choice now. Are we going to stand on the side of justice and demand payment? Or are we going to stand on the side of mercy and cancel the debt that's owed to us? Like the king in our parable, God initiates. And he's impartial with his dealings. If we've truly received mercy, our only option is to extend mercy. And if we do, we're set free from the torment and the pain and the grudge and the you owe me trap. So what's stirring in your heart this morning? What thoughts are jumping into your mind? What pushback are you feeling right now? I'm willing to guess that you're in one of three groups. If you've been hurt, if there's a debt outstanding that's owed to you, and if it's a big one, my guess is you're in one of three groups. One, I know I ought to forgive, but I just can't get up the courage to forgive. It seems like I would lose part of me I, that, that I'm used to, that I'm comforted by, that gives me power and strength. Makes me feel like I'm in control. Or what about this one? I know I ought to, but I just can't let them off so easily. It's just too easy. It's too easy for that, that person that owes me big it just wouldn't be fair. Where's the justice? Or number three, I've gone through the motions of forgiveness, but the old feelings just keep on coming back. I just can't shake the bitterness, the anger, and what's been stolen from me. And this is for all of us. Jesus is holding up a mirror for us with this parable. Just like Nathan did for David. He gives us his parable. We're supposed to be disgusted at the first servant's response. 
And then Jesus at the last moment says, hey, guess what? You're that servant. So often we fail to realize that we're the first servant, that we've been forgiven so much. That it is inconceivable that we would not forgive others. The debts are just not even comparable. The bad news is, for us, is that God is just. He can't tolerate or even be associated with sin. And we can't pay off the debt. The good news is that God is merciful. God is forgiving. If we'll face the mirror and take a look at our own condition and see the depth of our sin and see the depth of our debt and the depth of our forgiveness, it'll be hard to walk out into this life and not forgive in a similar way. Because we can't extend heart-forgiving forgiveness until we received heart-freeing forgiveness. Some of you remember the shooting on October 2nd, 2006, exactly 10 years ago, the West Nickel Mines School, an Amish one-room schoolhouse, Nickel Mines Village. The gunman Charles Roberts took hostages and shot eight out of ten girls, aged six to 13, and he killed five before he took his own life. What should the response have been from the Amish community? I may not be able to argue convincingly what it should have been, but I know what it was. It was a response of forgiveness. Forgiveness that's unlimited. Forgiveness that goes beyond feelings, beyond emotions. And a forgiveness that freed all those that were willing to extend it from anger and bitterness and grudges that would have controlled their life otherwise. The predominant sentiment was, look, you don't owe me. They had every justification to say, you owe me. But the response was, you don't owe me. I wonder if we could be a community that gets in the practice of saying, you don't owe me, rather than you owe me one. What would that look like for us as a church, as a people, as a family, to get in the habit of saying, you don't owe me? The whole gospel is built on forgiveness. We can't afford to misunderstand it. We've got to recognize that we need it and we need to give it. So I hope and I pray that we'll do that. We'll be a community that shines the light of Christ and says, hey, you don't owe me. Because of the massive, massive debt that we've already been forgiven.
Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit that works and moves in us, that stirs up things from our past, that stirs up things even from our present right now, and Lord, that shapes and molds us for the future, the future that you desire for us. Lord, I pray that you would release us from anger and bitterness with that very simple but very difficult thing to do, which is just to forgive. To look up to you. To look up to the cross and see the death that you died and the blood that you shed, the currency that you used to pay off the debt, to cancel the debt for us, and to say, wow, whatever's been done to me becomes very, very small in light of the cross. Lord Jesus, help us to move out into this world to be a light, to do the most unintuitive thing imaginable to forgive no matter what size the debt no matter how deep the hurt thank you lord for your son who went to the cross so that we could receive mercy instead of justice in jesus name amen